Hey everyone, Aaron here. I just wanted to give a quick introduction before this episode that we had a really good time recording this and really enjoyed the content, but unfortunately noticed afterwards we had some real tinny feedback that was difficult to work through, at least on my end, so I don't sound as great as Brian does. But we still wanted to release this to you and hope that you enjoy it. Thank you very much. Welcome to the Infernal Schoolhouse Podcast. Explosions and fire. My name's Brian. My name is Aaron. And now that we've introduced ourselves, this week we're going to be exploring the three pillars of adventure from page eight of the D&D Player's Handbook. And what are those, Brian? Well, funny you should ask. According to the handbook, they are exploration, social interaction, and combat. And typically in podcasts, YouTube videos, etc., these are taken in order and generally just given as an overview, packaged as advice for DMs. I think that what we like about it is we didn't know much about them, so we kind of dove into the history. We wanted to get kind of our take on what we've seen in the past. And as we've looked at it, I think the main question that I kept thinking to myself was, is D&D the Frankenstein's monster of gaming? And I would say absolutely it is. And potentially that's why we love it so much. And just a, a quick qualification here. This, is, this would not qualify as a deep dive what we're about to do here, but maybe more of a snorkel. So we did an overview, sort of glossed over the history and the influences of the three categories, but we're going to give a fair amount of opinion and commentary here. And Aaron, of course, has a lot of the detailed knowledge and experience here, so I'm going to defer to him when it comes to the influences of each of these. Fair enough. And I think that we're going to start in more of a chronological order of what we think kind of comes first. And for us, that's combat, kind of more of the... The, the true source and spirit of the game comes from... When diplomacy fails, this is the most mechanics-intensive component of the game. So anytime within your D&D game, you're going to start swinging axes, thrusting swords, loosing arrows, or throwing hands, you're in combat. And the rules around this are plentiful. We've got initiative order, we've got actions, bonus actions, movement speed attacks, damage rolls, etc. And so Aaron, talk to us about the influences and where this tradition of combat games comes from. Absolutely, Brian. So why don't we take a little bit of a walk back into the 80s? And by that, I mean the 1780s, where we go to Prussia with a man named Johann Christian Ludwig Helbig. Rolls right off the tongue. Helbig actually really created the first war game that we think of when it comes to how we deal with tactics and miniatures and how we understand more of a playthrough of more modern games that we see nowadays. And in fact, he used this to help train the soldiers of the Prussian army. And they actually use it in the Franco-Prussian War. Yeah, and I was really interested to see that many credit Prussia's victory in this war to their wargaming tradition. So in this sense, this was a very realistic and very real-world applicable game. Exactly. And I think it's, it's pretty interesting as, as you read more and more into it, not only does that tradition start there, but it even carries through to today. You know, I know that a lot of the modern war gaming from a professional standpoint, as in people who make policy decisions and come up with military strategies, still do war gaming. They'll actually sit at a table and they'll bring in a whole fleet of ships in the Pacific and roll D20s around what these things can do and how they'll fare in an actual fight. 
Did you say D20? I did. How you know that? We'll leave for another podcast. <laughs> Fair <laughs> enough. So from there, we kind of move on from a man who developed this for the military and wanted to make some money off of it to one of my favorite people and authors, H.G. Wells. And so he actually developed really the first codified rules for playing with toy soldiers. He published a little book titled The Little Wars. It's actually widely remembered as the first rule book for miniature wargaming. And it's funny when I think about this because I love all of his books, especially War of the Worlds. Not the weird Tom Cruise movie where he's constantly running away from explosions. I'm not going to. I'm not going to mount a defense of that movie now, but at some point I will. Yeah, absolutely, I continue. <laughs> and I remember reading this book, and, and so at, at the end of the book, before the aliens all die of some random pox that they get while they're on Earth. They actually are beset by the English military trying to strike them with artillery and with soldiers. And in his game, he actually had little artillery cannons that shot out dice. I'm thinking to myself that we've missed out on this amazing crossover that H.G. Wells could have developed back in 1913, aliens versus the English military. I mean, that seems like kind of a big miss. Perhaps we could pick up where he left off with Infernal Schoolhouse games. Who knows? Absolutely. So tell us about Gygax and Arneson a little bit. Yes. So Gary Gygax was very into war games. And he and his buddies would gather in his basement for days on end, much to the chagrin of his wife and children. Now, can I, can I stop you right there for a second? Imagine that somebody else is joining this podcast who has no idea who Gary Gygax is. Would you mind explaining that to them? Yeah, Gary Gygax is generally considered to be the sort of grand poppy of D&D. If you look at the original source books for Advanced Dungeons and Dragons, they all say by Gary Gygax. Now, there's a kind of a contentious history here because the, the sort of co-founder of D&D, Dave Arneson, these two men had a pretty extreme falling out. We're not going to go into the full history here, but it is important to note that Gygax and Arneson actually met because of their mutual interest in wargaming. And so here they are in the basement. They've got these massive maps with all the all the miniatures. And really what they're doing is just similar to the two things that you just mentioned previously. They're, they're moving units of an army and they're rolling die to see the outcome. But there doesn't there's not really much of a role play component in these games, at least at first. Absolutely. And there also comes the game Chainmail, which was developed by Gary Gygax, which is another miniature-based game. But what makes this revolutionary is, unlike the other games we'd mentioned and all the other ones kind of in between, is that this is the first real game where they separated the soldier from the army. So we think our, our army would say, kind of like what we're doing here in this massive map, but I want to know what Sir Stabbington is doing as he's going into battle. And I want to find out more about that. And I just want to play him. Yeah, and I think for me, if I think about playing D&D, and maybe I'm role-playing a general in an army or, you know, we're about to go to war, one of the things that would, that would strongly occur to me would be, is there any way to avoid this? Can I avert this? Can I send a messenger? Can I, you know, give some sort of a gesture? And so I think this is a kind of a special magical moment within wargaming that, that really centers around Gary Gygax and Dave Arneson, which is, what if... And, and how do we build a mechanic or how do we allow for that? So in the vein of the typical human mindset of what have you done for me lately, we move on to our next pillar, which is? The next pillar is social interaction. And really the way I think about this is role play. I've read in the player's handbook how they describe it. But in my own words, I'm going to say that these are going to be interactions between two entities with agency. 
And so by that, I mean, as opposed to, of course, opening a door, figuring out a machine, picking up a rock, etc. So if we think about monsters, bad guys, player characters, non-player characters, magically animated things, forest animals, etc. These moments that could be between player characters or often between player characters and their dungeon master. And so talk to us about origins here. Yeah, I would also be curious to find out what like a paladin would say about what things he thinks have agency and don't have agency. Yes, as a paladin, you would know best. <laughs> so where we kind of go from here is that Right before we got to really the chainmail era and, and getting to more of those individual miniature pieces fighting each other, we had Diplomacy. Diplomacy is this really amazing board game that came out in the 1950s. And the idea behind it was what happens behind the scenes of war? What happens behind the scenes of all these political machinations that allow for this whole thing to happen? So where it went from there is that people would gather and play this game where they would align on different teams, be given scenarios, different countries, and try and figure out how to either work together or against each other to work towards their one singular purpose. I love this idea. Have you ever played Diplomacy? I actually have not. I've played similar games to it, but I've never played the original Diplomacy. That could be fun. Game night. <laughs> Sounds great. So from there, we then pick up with kind of another evolving of diplomacy into a game called Bronstein. And Bronstein was this experimental game and game genre that was introduced by David Wesley. He was a member of the Midwest Military Simulation Association, Obviously. very similar to Johan's name. I like how they just roll off the tongue. <laughs> and so he made this in the late 1960s, again, around the same time they were rolling into chainmail. So we can kind of see how this feeds into Arneson and Gygax's mentality. This was originally played in the Twin Cities, and he was a very influential player kind of starting this off. So what he had was this town of Bronstein in Germany, where they had a whole multiplayer environment and they had all these different roles assigned to each player within the city, not just the military roles. So they might be the banker, the mayor, I don't know, the, the horse veterinarian, whatever all the other ones were. Which is really cool to me because this feels very strongly like the beginnings or one of the, the threads of the non-player character. Exactly. Right? Yeah. So when you go into a new town in D&D, likely you're going to look up the mayor. Or whoever's in leadership. You're likely to meet some sort of law enforcement group or something like that. And obviously, they have so much agency in what's going to be happening in the story. So I love that. Agreed. And I, I kind of wonder when they had their first game of Bronstein or one of its offshoots where somebody came in and became the murder hobo and said, well, I'd like to stab the shopkeeper. <laughs> <laughs> oh, this guy sells chocolate? I'm going to kill him. <laughs> so what was really different and novel about this is, again, that they had this ability to have all these different roles that people would pretend or interact with each other very much like you know doing some sort of murder mystery or the sort of things you'd have a party game over except now it's organized mm -hmm. and he really did a lot of leading into blackmore and influencing arneson about what he wanted to make mm. okay so blackmore dave arneson there is this incredible documentary that's available on amazon prime called the secrets of blackmore I've when I first started getting into D&D a couple of years ago I watched it it's pretty incredible it's these this sort of legendary game that predates Dungeons and Dragons so they just refer to the game as Blackmore and Dave Arneson had his buddies this was the I kind of, I think like for like one of the origins of player characters so we have like the first dwarf and the first elf characters 
and they're in this they're storming this massive castle called Blackmore. And apparently Arneson had all the rules like in his head. So he would so the the player characters, the PCs would say, Alright, I'm gonna try to open this door. And Arneson would just say, Roll two D six. And then he would just tell them if they did it or not. And they never understood what they were rolling for exactly because only Arneson knew. It sounds like a mental DM screen. Yes, exactly. That's a great way of thinking about it. It just he carried it with him wherever he went. It's it's described most excellently in the documentary. And there's also some biographies and lots of ink has been spilled on the relationship between Gygax and Arneson. But I don't think anyone would dispute that Arneson really brought this to the forefront. This idea of the player characters and allowing for their agency and allowing for the amazing, insane, lovable chaos that D&D games bring us. And yeah, it's pretty cool. Yeah. So what's funny about that is when you he, when he say that is that Dave Arneson actually even described Blackmore as medieval Bronstein, mm. just featuring like mythical creatures. So, you know, he, he already knew what he was kind of cribbing from. So mm. it's unsurprising someone who come in and cribbed from him. But with that being said, now we have two things working together. We have a little bit of role play. We have a little bit of combat. And so then we need to add one more very crucial pillar here that seems to be really kind of a linchpin in making the game work, and that's exploration. Yeah, and for me, exploration as a dungeon master is the most challenging component because often it requires that you have this like sweeping overview and this sort of narrative decision-making process where you figure out as the dungeon master, am I going to hand wave through this part? Am I going to make my players roll through this part? And how in-depth do I want to go? So I'll use the movie analogy here. Mm -hmm. Let's say the characters... Here's a good example. Gladiator. So they try to kill Maximus. And they are unable to. He's wounded. He gets on a horse. And he goes from Germany to Spain. And so how much time do you spend on this moment? Like, does he... Where does he sleep? What, What does he eat? You know, do we want to go there? And in the movie, it's just a montage of four or five shots of him riding a horse and looking increasingly tired. And then he just shows up in Spain and falls off his horse. And so it's the same in a game, right? So for exploration, you know, I think about it in terms of there's the macro and the micro, right? So it's like traveling over large distances. Again, where do they eat? What do they eat? Where do they sleep? How do they navigate the train? And then even more on the micro level, like say, in a dungeon or in an encounter? Do they have to pull the lever to get over somewhere? How do they solve the puzzle? Do they drink the wine or not? Do they poke the owl bear? You know, things like that. And the mechanics are a lot less structured here. And again, a lot more up to the dungeon master to decide how to play this. Agreed. And I would say that the only fantasy I can think of with the movie Gladiator is the fantasy that Russell Crowe is from Spain. <laughs> with his Australian accent. Although everyone speaking Latin is speaking in a British accent, so maybe there's some sort of a chart that we can. Well, that's use what we do. I mean, anytime you want to make things seem classical or historical, you always bring in the English mm-hmm. accent. I blame Shakespeare. Absolutely, it's just a gentrification of language over time and accent. So good times. With that, what happened is that they found this really cool game, not even in their same game company. Who's they? They, Gary Gygax, Gygax Dave Arneson, okay. right? Our fine friends from before. This game was really interesting and novel. The whole premise of it was just stay alive outside. Wait, say the name of it again? It's called Outdoor Survival. Ah. So survive outside, make your your way from point A to point B and deal with different things like fishing, not starving, Mm. lighting a fire. How do you get over this impassable terrain? 
And they really enjoyed it. And they enjoyed it so much that when they developed the very first D&D one, this OG D&D, they decided, you know what? In order to play our game, you need to have outdoor survival. You also need to own Chainmail. Again, a separate, completely different game. So I'm, I'm kind of wondering if like there was those houses on Christmas. Somebody sits down and they open their package and they find D&D. And it's like, oh, by the way, do you own these other two games? Mm-hmm. Well, I guess you're not playing. Yeah. Or they just make this reference like, okay, pull out your Chainmail rulebook. <laughs> and you're like, mom. <laughs> I need Chainmail. <laughs> <laughs> Can we go to the store? <laughs> So it's funny to think about that. Like that's I don't remember like legitimately any other game. I mean, you have D and D has its rule books, like its core books and its additional books. And if somebody, especially as the dungeon master, says, "I want to play a character from Tasha's Cauldron of Everything," then you're like, "I don't own that. I should probably go buy that book." Right? Mm-hmm. It makes sense. But you as a player, you just need one book, which mm-hmm. is the player's handbook, and then you're done. The DM does the rest of the work. But you as a player, and OG D and D. I bet you're going to need to own three different IPs in order to play this game. That's intense. So, yeah, I think this does sort of give us a little bit more of a in-focus picture of the cobbled-together nature of modern Dungeons & Dragons. And, Aaron, I think in the future, potentially a future episode, we could kind of unpack this a little bit more. Mm-hmm. But I think this sort of leads us to the origins of the original Dungeons & Dragons and then advanced dungeons and dragons agreed and then we're getting into more of the the schism of where we're going so advanced dungeons and dragons coming from gary gygax who's kind of splinting away from you know dave arneson at this point and he's he's really more becoming the oreo to arneson's hydrox mm, the great nerd schism indeed i've found there's gygax apologists and arneson apologists have you found this indeed where like you know, if i say something about gygax inevitably someone would be like well actually arneson blah 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 or vice versa right if you're like, oh, Arneson ran this cool game of Blackmore. Well, actually, Gygax, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> very controversial moment. Agreed. This is very much like an Apple sort of schism as well. Mm-hmm. You know, we bring in the Waz or not, you know, like what's mm-hmm. happening. And, you know, when I think about what they went through, it's very similar to one of our, I guess, founding members of innovation in America, Mr. Thomas Edison. And how he great point made some cribbing and borrowing from other individuals. Yeah, so if you look at a history book, Edison's king, right? He's amazing and he's brilliant. But when you go a little deeper, you realize he made use of like strong arm goons. <laughs> and he would literally send people to disrupt violently his competitors. He would usurp patents from other people and things like that. But he sort of wins and his name is on things. And yeah, I agree. Although I would say, while Gygax gets the credit. I don't know of any sort of dastardly tactics. I think the way I think of Gygax is he's sort of the great recognizer. Mm -hmm. I think he was playing these war games, understood and had really built a community. The first Gen Con was about war games. It wasn't even D&D. But I think he realized this magical moment via Dave Arneson, where the fusion of role playing into the war games was the actual magic. And that magic survives and thrives today, mm-hmm. this very day, with the inclusion of exploration. But I think, yeah, I don't see him as a villain, nor do I see Arneson as a villain. I think they just had different tactics and different ways about it. But Gygax kind of put the label on it. Agreed. And, you know, we're not going to get into it now, but Gygax also didn't really have a, a good time after AD&D either. So... 
it's not exactly like he's the Stan Lee making it all the way to the very end of the whole process where he's still raking in all this money off of it. He did have a difficult time. There was even a further schism between him and then the Dungeons and Dragons properties. Although he did, I recall, live in L.A. in a mansion and, you know, was was over the, the sort of like the movies and the TV show and stuff like well, that. Well, I mean, this is like 80s mansion, though. Yeah. This isn't like, you know, nowadays mansion. Fair enough. So recently I read this book called Empire of Imagination. Gary Gygax and the Birth of Dungeons and Dragons by Michael Whitwer. I highly recommend this book. It's it's a really fascinating read. And that's the source of 100% of my knowledge about <laughs> Gary Gygax. But it's a, it's a really excellent book. Yeah, it looks great. And we'll, we'll also post a link to this on our socials as well, just that way in case you want to pick it up and give it a read because it is a good book. Speaking of socials, so our website is live. We have a presence on Instagram. And... Facebook and working on some other ones. Any suggestions on what else we should do? Let us know. We're actually, I don't know if you've been hearing it or if I'm going to hear it when I'm editing this and post later, but we are also 3D printing some stuff as well for our Etsy store. We are sitting at a table with little Bertha right now and she's cranking out some of our first products that are going to be for sale on our Etsy page, which I've worked for a good solid four hours on and I'm not very far into it. <laughs> well, I'm excited because I saw the photo shoot and it looks absolutely gorgeous. Oh, yes. Thank you so much. So I think that we're at a good stopping point here. I, I think that we've discovered as we ran through this, how these pillars kind of interchange with each other, how they're kind of a weird mishmash of different parts of board games and making them something that still lasts to today. Like you're saying, being a great recognizer, understanding that, hey, this is fun. This is fun. This part, maybe not so much. Let's combine them all Let's together. tape them together. <laughs> exactly. And now we have this and, and how it's grown over time, which we'll talk about in a future podcast and kind of where we are now in this really incredible, inclusive and fun game. Yeah. And I will give just one more kind of disclaimer. Mm-hmm. Um, this was a snorkel, right? Yes. So we sort of skimmed the surface over the top of these things. <laughs> I 100% do not consider myself an expert in these categories. Aaron? Potentially in some of these things. Um, But I think for me, this is just an amazing opportunity to dig a little bit deeper and to then kind of look at these amazing connections that happen to create this game that that ends up being a template for a lot of other really cool games that we can continue to talk about. Absolutely. Well, we thank you for listening and we look forward to seeing you next time. Thanks, everybody.